You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Administration said it's as ready as it can be for the expected surge of asylum-seeking migrants at the southern border when the Title 42 pandemic restrictions end this Wednesday. But President Biden has requested $3.5 billion for more agents and resources to help border towns. And Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Congress needs to back them up with funding. We need Congress to provide us the additional resources we've requested uh, to do this in a safe, orderly and humane way. On the legal front, 19 Republican states are making a last-ditch effort to keep Title 42 in effect. They're asking the Supreme Court to intervene and keep the rules in place while litigation continues. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, there's been litigation in two different circuits over Title 42 with contrary results. So the original Title 42 litigation was when the administration said it was going to end Title 42. A bunch of states went to Louisiana, to Louisiana court in the Fifth Circuit and got that Louisiana court to enjoin the lifting of Title 42. And so the Biden administration, which at the time didn't really want to end Title 42, said, okay, we will basically appeal this very slowly. We're not going to ask for emergency stays. And so they were continuing to implement Title 42. And that case sort of slowly worked its way up to the Fifth Circuit. And it's been brief now, and we're waiting for a decision from the Fifth Circuit on whether Title 42 can be lifted. But at the same time that that injunction remained in the lower court in the district court case in Louisiana, the D.C. District Court, a different court, ruled that Title 42 as applied in this instance was unlawful because it was preventing people from seeking asylum and there wasn't a compelling public health justification anymore for a ban as opposed to using masks and other protective measures, etc. And so that case ruled that Title 42 had to be lifted. So you have one saying Title 42 can't be lifted and you have another one saying Title 42 had to be lifted. And what the administration did is it actually said that it would acquiesce to the decision in the district court, which was subsequently appealed to the D.C. Circuit and was not paid. So they said they'd acquiesce to that and that they would live Title 42 on December 20th. And so that's what's happening is unless 
something changes, Title 42 will be lifted December 20th. Now, many states have sued to intervene in that case. The D.C. Circuit has said that that intervention was too late so that it can't happen. A petition was filed December 19th to the Supreme Court asking for an administrative stay, and it's possible that that administrative stay will indeed be approved. Leon, the D.C. Circuit Court refused to keep the Title 42 restrictions in force, saying the 19 states waited too long to try to intervene. So the states asked the Supreme Court to intervene, and Chief Justice John Roberts has temporarily blocked the ending of Title 42. What happens next? They're giving the government an opportunity to say why that stay shouldn't remain until this litigation is decided. And so we will see whether the Supreme Court actually maintains the stay for a significant period of time while it decides on whether to keep the injunction pending briefing of the case or whether it decides to just allow the Title 42 to be rescinded. So the Chief Justice was the one who temporarily blocked the scheduled ending of Title 42, and it came just hours after the Republican states filed their request. What does that tell you? Well, certainly the Chief Justice is one of the key swing votes And I think he is one of the most practical votes in addition to being a swing vote. I mean, he's the one who had to decide it because he has the jurisdiction over the D.C. Circuit. The fact that he was willing to basically reward such a sort of very sudden stay request that could have been filed earlier, but that was filed in the nick of time, probably shows some receptiveness to the practical aspects of giving people more time to implement this Title 42 solution rather than just lifting it during the middle of the holidays. This seems like a case the Supreme Court will and should take. Yes, probably. Now, what's complicated about this case at the end of the day is you sort of have two very different worlds. You have a world where if we had been maybe in the first two or three months of the COVID crisis, and somebody was challenging the administration's ability to have Title 42, you might have seen a vastly different case than you have now, which is we're years into the COVID crisis, and so the facts don't necessarily match up with what's going on here. And so you sort of have this very bizarre situation where a statute that's probably pretty much needed and should be given vast deference to is still being examined under a set of facts where pretty much everybody's trying to say that there is no more COVID crisis. And so you really have a complicated set of facts of how the Supreme Court will interpret this now, as opposed to how it might have interpreted it the exact same case in maybe June of 2020. So that will be very interesting to see. Republicans and many Democrats have expressed fear about the ending of Title 42. California Governor Gavin Newsom said it could break his state. And the border town of El Paso has declared a state of emergency. Absolutely. It's a very difficult scenario right now for any state along the southern border or any state that the federal government is going to plan to send people crossing the border to. Because at the moment, what happens is this. There becomes a temporary displacement between the individual and where they're trying to go. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that I would say with very few limited exceptions, a large, large, large majority of the people, if not almost all of them, 
know where they want to go when they enter America. They have some person who's a relative, an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, a friend, a contact person that they're supposed to go and see. And so the question is, how does that person get there? And the states have been displacing that by sending them to all kinds of other different places that are not the exact location they're trying to go. And now the federal government's actually talking about doing that too, not as a matter of fight, but just as a matter of needing to clear these southern border locations of just mass amount of people because they don't think it's fair to El Paso or Brownsville or somewhere else that they just have a lot, a lot of people. So they want to start sending them to other cities so that those cities can process people. And that's where you see Gavin Newsom and others saying, well, if you're going to send them to California, we already have a significant homelessness problem in a lot of our cities. And now you're asking us to house these people, even if it's not permanent housing, it's housing until you can figure out what bus to send them in or what plane. And so the idea is that's going to be way too much of resource intensive pool on those locations and it could lead to a fiscal crisis. And so at that point, you now have the Biden administration contemplating reinstating a Trump era ban on getting asylum if you cross the border. This is now being actively considered. It's something the Trump administration did. They said, if you cross the border illegally, we're going to ban you from getting asylum. And what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to channel people through the ports of entry to try to give them as many opportunities to seek asylum through the ports as possible. But the question is, how long is it going to take to build this infrastructure? And are people going to actually wait for two, three weeks, six weeks? We're going to wait to see. But I do think if they can get it organized quickly enough, that people can actually get an appointment that is a tangible thing and they can show up at that appointment. It's possible that people respect that and will go to their appointment instead of crossing the border illegally. But it's going to really need to be a system that actually has credible appointments that are honored or otherwise people won't do that. And so that's the problem that the Trump administration was facing until they were able to put in Title 42. So the Biden administration is considering a policy that would stop migrants from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border if they could have sought asylum in another country they passed through. That's one of two things they're considering, and they may end up doing both. They may end up saying, look, you had to seek asylum in a different country. That was one of the things Trump did. Or they may end up saying you will lose the ability to get asylum, which is easier to get than this other thing called withholding of removal, because there's two types of protection you can get if you ask for protection. Asylum, you only have to prove there's a 10% chance you will be persecuted in your home country. So that's all you have to prove to get asylum, because the, the standard is, that you have a well-founded fear of future persecution. And a well-founded fear has been interpreted by courts as having a one in 10 chance. For withholding of removal, you have to show it's more likely than not. So it's a much easier standard. And if you win, you can get a path to citizenship, which allows you to get a path to citizenship, but also to petition for your spouse and your minor children who may have been left behind. You can bring them into the United States. But... If you're banned from getting asylum, which is we're actually not obligated under any international refugee laws 
from giving people asylum. What we're obligated to do is give them this second thing I'm about to talk about, withholding of removal, which basically just means you get to stay in purgatory in America with only a right to work, but that's it. You don't get a path to citizenship. You have a much harder burden to win. You have to show a 50% likelihood of persecution as opposed to a 10% likelihood of persecution. That's the hard road you're going to have to face if you try to get protection by sneaking across the border illegally. And so that's what the Biden administration, they can either do one of those two things or they could do both of those two things. And so they're actively weighing these decisions as we speak. And we'll probably hear more about this if the Supreme Court doesn't say the ending of Title 42. I've always heard how difficult it is to get asylum, but a 10% showing doesn't seem that high. It's difficult to get asylum because not only do you have to have that well-founded fear, but that fear has to be on the basis of your race, your religion, your national origin, your political opinion, or your social group. So what happens with a lot of these Central American migrants is they don't fit that. And so that's the problem. That's why it's very hard for them to get it. But for a lot of these people coming from Nicaragua or Venezuela or Cuba, it might be easier if they can show that they were somehow a political dissident. But even in those cases, the government does try to really force you to show that in the past something bad had happened to you or that you can make a very clear indication of how something bad is going to happen to you if you if you get deported in the future. And so it's easier for the Venezuelan and the Cuban and the Nicaraguan people, but it's not, again, super easy for anybody. You really do have to make your case, but I'm just saying, if you can set forth a set of facts and that set of facts is 10% likely to happen, then you're supposed to be able to get asylum under the way the statute is interpreted. So it can take years to get asylum, to go through the process. Is there a way for the government to speed up the process? So what happens is this is sort of a Rube Goldberg or, <laughs> or balloon-type process where if you, you know, if you move one part, the other part is affected. And so here's what's complicated about that. The government does move very quickly in about 90 days, in fact, in cases where someone is detained the entire time because they're very sensitive. They don't want people detained for a long period of time. The problem is they have very few detention beds to keep people. The government, first of all, is not permitted to detain minors at all. And so it can't detain a minor by themselves, and it can't detain a minor even if with their family. And so if a minor comes with their family then they either have to let out the entire family or separate the minors from the family. And that's what the Trump administration did, and they were very roundly criticized for that. So in cases where a minor is involved, detention is not even on the table. And so there, those cases all get put into the four- or five-year backlog of non-detained cases. And so the people who end up getting this faster processing are people who come as single adults. And so for them... They get the faster processing, but again, only to the extent that there is a sufficient detention capability to keep them in detention for the entire time of their case. It just sounds like there's no really good solution to what may turn out to be a crisis at the border. The question is this. Here's the, here's the two difficult questions 
that the Biden administration is going to have to grapple with, which is if they really want a manageable border, do they have to concede that there has to be a way to implement Remain in Mexico in a humane fashion with actual secure spaces and, and lawyers and buildings and all of that and courts? Will they want to create that architecture? And quite frankly, will they be smart about it so that they would trade that in exchange for something like DACA and get this done congressionally? instead of doing it unilaterally and not even getting anything in exchange for it. So I think there's an opportunity here, if someone's thinking outside the box creatively, to come up with a legislative version of Remain in Mexico, which will be very pleasing to Republicans, because it will actually concretize and memorialize this process forever and trade it for the people here who are the dreamers. So is there a way to do that? They should consider doing that because otherwise it's just going to be incremental changes that will ultimately lead you to this outcome anyway, unless you want to just have a border that is, you know, not manageable. And those are going to be your options, one or the other. Let's turn now to the ending of another immigration policy that's in court, the Remain in Mexico program. A Texas federal judge for the second time ruled that the Biden administration cannot end the Remain in Mexico program. I thought the Supreme Court had ruled that the Biden administration could end the Remain in Mexico program. So the Supreme Court ruled that the Remain in Mexico program was not a requirement under the statute, saying that the Biden administration had the ability to end the Remain in Mexico program. And they also ruled that the states couldn't actually issue, I mean, couldn't actually sue for an injunction uh, to require the Remain in Mexico program to be kept in effect. But they did remand a very small part of the case, which said the district court could consider whether the actual justification given for ending the Remain in Mexico program was arbitrary and capricious. And so that's what was remanded to the district court. And the district court ruled that the justification given by the Biden administration for ending the Remain in Mexico program is likely arbitrary and capricious. And so it vacated that memo. Now, what's interesting is in vacating that memo, all it basically said is that that memo cannot be used to end Remain in Mexico. But because the Supreme Court says the district court no longer has injunctive powers, it can't really enjoin the administration into doing particular things like, hey, you have to put 500 people a day in Remain in Mexico, or you have to have these locations, or you have to. They can't do any of that. All they can do is say that the memo itself is unlawful, and so they'd have to use a new memo to, quote-unquote, legally rescind the Remain in Mexico program. This judge is a Trump appointee, and he seems to be on a mission. Well, I mean, the judge certainly does not credit at all any justification that's being given for ending the Remain in Mexico program. The judge basically thinks there's no way that someone can justify ending that program 
And so any attempt to end that program is going to be viewed as arbitrary and capricious by this judge. And so that seems very obvious. And so the question is, how does the Biden administration want to move forward? They're certainly appealing it. But the question is, do they want to appeal this quickly and try to just get the Remain in Mexico program off the books completely? Or do they want to appeal it slowly, just knowing that at the end of the day, this district court is going to be hamstrung in what it can actually force the Biden administration to do under the Remain in Mexico program. Thanks so much, Leon, for helping us see through this tangle of immigration laws and policies. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Jack Daniels is fighting the use of its brand on a dog toy. Christian Dior is fighting the use of its name by an adult film star. It's all about trademark dilution. Joining me is Bloomberg Law's Kyle Johnner, who's written about the cases. Start by telling us a little bit about why Dior and Jack Daniels are suing. Jack Daniels and or are suing, well, it's for multiple reasons. Um, the dilution aspect is uh, just one component, as it usually is. Um, in Jack Daniels' case, they've got a dog toy out there that's shaped like a Jack Daniels bottle, but instead of their logo, um, it's you know similarly styled, but um, it's bad spaniels and it's got some kind of <laughs> some poop jokes on it. And uh, being like I said, being sold as a dog toy by a company that actually has a bunch of these kinds of toys that are modeled after uh, kind of puns on um, different brands that are out there. And they ended up losing a decision in the Ninth Circuit that found it to be parody and protected by the First Amendment. And that's the case that's going on to the Supreme Court. Duar is a different kind of case because it's before the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. And they are simply opposing a registration of a trademark of a porn star's name, Jiggy Duar, um, who is, uh, like I said, just trying to get a trademark to protect her and her name as a brand. So, um, and their argument is that number one, that people will think that they endorse um, that content because of um, because of the name. But as relevant here, talking about dilution, um, it's also their concern that um, they would not want their brand to be associated with pornography, and that's a dilution by tarnishment claim, which is can kind of stand separately from the confusion aspect of things. So, trademark dilution—they're suing under a federal law. Yes, trademark dilution is um, in federal law. It um, actually was codified in the 1990s. Uh, there were some state laws out there over the decades that had been had been slowly introduced, but uh, since the 40s or so, the concept was really kind of introduced 
um, by a paper uh, in Harvard Law Review in 1927. And uh, that concept kind of slowly gained steam. And the whole idea was that, you know, if someone's kind of trading on your name or, or making your mark less distinctive, then, you know, the brand owner should be able to kind of protect that and because they, you know, invest in their marks. So they should uh, be able to stop others from making that investment less valuable um, by coming after them and using that mark on other things once they've established a certain level of fame among the general public. For this article, you spoke to a lot of trademark lawyers, professors. Mm -hmm. Why do some think that this trademark dilution claims are just a step too far? Well, and it kind of goes back to the origins of trademark law. Um, and back kind of in the beginning, in its early development, it was really just a, a way to prevent fraud, passing off one product as made by someone who didn't make it. Um, and it was a pretty straightforward thing. Um, that uh, eventually kind of got expanded as, you know, companies kind of started to branch out um, and, get, and, you know, become, you know, nationwide brands and that kind of thing. Um, and con the concept of consumer confusion kind of came into play, and that became the dominant question in trademark infringement. Would a consumer be likely to be confused into thinking that this company made or endorsed or is in some way affiliated with a product? Um, if so, then that's infringement. If not, it's not. And that's, broadly speaking, the general rule in trademark law. With dilution, you don't need to establish confusion. Um, you just need to establish that, one, you have a famous mark, and two, that it either blurs the mark by making it less distinctive or that it tarnishes the mark by associating it with something, you know, kind of unseemly like porn. Or And Jack Daniels also brought a uh, dilution by tarnishment claim, saying that the poop jokes on the dog toy tarnished the brand of the uh, liquor company, which is kind of funny because I've seen other cases where association with liquor has been claimed as a reason that their product was tarnished. So um, it's one All of those in the things eyes of the holder. Kind of arbitrary. Exactly, exactly, which presents a problem in, in, into itself because that kind of presents kind of a moral judgment and a subjective judgment. And in recent Supreme Court cases, we've had uh, Bernetti and Tam where laws on registration were struck down because they were not viewpoint neutral. They were discrimination based on viewpoint. So prohibitions in the TAM case, for example, on the disparaging trademarks, in that case, the slant, the Asian American band name that kind of took back what was obviously known as a slur. Um, they kind of took it and made it their own. And the trademark office said, no, that's not allowed under the law because it's a disparaging mark. But they fought all the way to the Supreme Court. And they said that, you know, you can't just have this law that says because it's disparaging in whose opinion. Like it's kind of a First Amendment issue at that point where, you know, a government's deciding what's what's okay as a trademark. And they didn't really distinguish. They could have said, as, as noted in the article by a professor, they could have said, you know, this isn't speech. This is use in commerce as a trademark. It's not the same as saying you can't say it. But if they kind of said, you know, it's like it's important to have a trade, have a protectable trademark. And that's, you know, it's still a First Amendment issue. So, and then similar situation with the Bernetti case, where F U C T, which you can imagine how that gets pronounced, yes, <laughs> um, was the mark in question, and that was kind of a violated terms in trademark law that you can't have vulgar marks, basically. And so that rule fell too, which brings into question things like dilution, where 
by itself, if, if dilution was the only thing holding it back a trademark, a dilution by tarnishment in particular, then you might be able to argue that for the same reasons, you can't have this, you know, subjective viewpoint based termination, which like we just talked about with alcohol, like, so is alcohol tarnishing a brand or not? So that really kind of leaves the door open to, you know, obviously the same kinds of issues that uh, the Supreme Court kind of ruled in favor of the First Amendment in, in terms of Tam and Brunetti. And just about every lawyer you spoke to thought that these kind of claims might prove the Christian Dior and the Jack Daniels might prove unconstitutional in the end? Um, the tarnishment claim, yes. Uh, lawyers in general are pretty in favor for, I mean, these people litigate um, and defend brands all the time, so they are, can have an expansive view on you know brand holders' rights. Um, where professors um, that I talk to um, are often, at least, not always, um, more inclined to say, you know, if it's not confusing consumers, then why are we restricting it? That doesn't make sense. This isn't brand protection law. This is consumer protection law. Um, but as far as tarnishment goes, yes, even the attorneys that were kind of pro-dilution, broadly speaking, as a separate cause of action, they acknowledge that, yeah, that's actually a pretty good point. <laughs> that could actually that could actually fall. Jack Daniels raised that claim at the Supreme Court. Is that something that they're going to be considering, the tarnishment claim? That is that is kind of a secondary issue. I kind of brought that in along with the Dora case because it is another aspect of that very prominent case. Um, the part that's going before the Supreme Court is uh, kind of more of a uh, more direct consumer confusion versus First Amendment rights uh, question, where they're going to analyze a a rule about trademarks in expressive works and whether a dog toy counts as an expressive work, whether that circuit created law that many circuits have adopted, none have rejected, but some district courts have started to question. Basically, was it artistically relevant? Which, with a low bar to clear, and then did they explicitly mislead consumers? Otherwise, if it's an expressive work, that's why you can see, you know, brands get invoked in movies and TV shows, and especially if they're mocked. But even if they aren't necessarily, as long as it's like I said, artistically relevant, um, then it's pretty hard to for a brand owner to do much about it, um, for obviously good reason. With the First Amendment, you want to have creators have the freedom to do those sorts of things without having to fear a lawsuit just because you put a swoosh in your movie. But that is more about kind of where those lines are, because in that case, they're like, well, yes, traditional expressive works, most people are pretty okay with that bar being pretty low. Some people actually want it a little bit higher, want it just to be part of a confusion analysis rather than a way to short circuit one and just skip it altogether. Um, But overall, people are okay with the general, you know, gist of it. It's when it's products like a dog toy and other mass-produced consumer products that people like, that's not the kind of art that we're trying to protect with that. The problem is it's really hard to draw a line there as far as what's an expressive work or not. I've heard the examples before comparing Delta Airlines and Delta Faucets, and one of the trademark professors you spoke to used that. So where's the line? Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, I think those companies existed long before dilution law came into play. I think his main point with that was that, you know, that doesn't mean it's not possible for Delta to build a big brand, a very strong brand in airlines, just because Delta Faucet is a thing. If Delta Faucet was an up and coming faucet maker, um, then 
you know, they would be able to point to dilution law. And because usually you're very protected in your area of business and even related areas of business, areas of business that an airline might go into that a consumer would conceivably believe an airline would go into. That obviously doesn't really include faucets. So dilution law would be the way they would be able to block that. But I don't think that's something that you can do after decades of coexistence. So, and, and that's exactly the kind of case professors talk about when they're saying, yeah, this, this is protecting from that, which is that isn't that big of a problem for a company like Delta. So they're not sure exactly what it's supposed to prevent. Does a brand have to prove that it's famous in any mm-hmm. way? Or, you know, you know that Jack Daniels is famous. You know that Dior is famous. Mm-hmm. It's not quite a note when you see it kind of thing. There's ways you can prove fame or provide pretty good evidence of fame. First in the 90s, it was a little bit looser and not really um, as well spelled out. If you were famous in your industry, it might have been enough. They've clarified that about a decade later in uh, 2005, 2006, and said, no, you have to be famous to the general public. So even people who don't fly airlines know what Delta is. People who don't drink soda know what Coca-Cola is. So it's beyond your market. It's just a general public. And you can show that through you know, how much you spend on advertising, consumer surveys, as long as you're serving, you know, proper samples of people and various other media coverage and, you know, a lot of other um, pieces of evidence can factor into this question. But When do dilution claims succeed? When do they fail in court? Are there certain types that will definitely fail and certain that will definitely succeed? Well, they'll definitely fail if you're not famous. And sometimes, like I said, that's now a relatively high bar. As far as succeeding, the thing about dilution claims is that usually if there's a dilution claim, there's probably also an infringement claim. It's not super common. And I don't know of any court opinions, and no one could really provide me with one, where they said, no, this isn't going to be consumer confusion at all. There's no likelihood that a consumer is going to think that this product was for that or was, this product was made by that company or affiliated by it. And then also at the same time, but also there's delusion here. Um, that's just not a combination. You, anyone can really point to a great example of seeing. It does speak a lot to the, you know, the philosophy of trademark law and where we want it to go and kind of who we're protecting and the general purpose of it. Um, so it's still an important question, but from a practical manner, it doesn't show up too much as an independent thing because usually if you're going to spend all this money to litigate, it's because you're worried about consumers being confused. The dilution claims get brought up in trademark oppositions a lot. And a lot of times, if it's a dilution claim and it's a small player, it ends up being not worth their time to litigate it out anyway, because you know it's a, usually a giant company with a war chest to, to protect their brand and often a smaller company that, you know, it's, it's not worth it. I'll choose a different brand. I don't need this headache. So it doesn't really kind of get litigated out all that often. So it's hard to say exactly kind of where those lines end up being because usually there's a bigger trademark conflict over, you know, consumer confusion. If you win that, you probably win the dilution anyway, or you don't need it. So in trademark law, unless it's really flagrant, your best hope is getting an injunction and making them stop. I thought it was really interesting that the UCLA law professor you spoke to, Professor McKenna, said that people turn to dilution claims because it's a big hammer or they think it's a big hammer, particularly in cease and desist letters. Just explain what he means there for the average person who may not know about those cease and desist letters. Yeah. <laughs> usually, um, even big brands that are uh, pretty uh, you know, gung-ho with litigation, they usually start with a cease and desist letter because it's cheap to have your attorneys either in-house or on retainer or whatever, just 
ask people to stop first. And, and I think what he means is it, it, to them, it sounds like that would be scarier. They're just not scarier, but just adds to the level of, oh my God, this big company is coming at us and they have all this on us. So maybe we should go away. So, you know, if you're able to say you're confusing consumers and the, and the brand owners like, eh, I don't think so. And maybe gets, you know, half an idea to maybe fight it. But then they see the dilution part and saying, yeah, but there's also this law that it doesn't matter if you're in our industry or not, or if consumers are confused or not. Um, this is diluting our brand. Um, and maybe that's just in, in their eyes, just another reason for the alleged infringer or diluter <laughs> to <laughs> say, I don't want to fight this. A rebrand is less costly than going to war here with a lot less benefit at the end. So, because if a cease and desist letter is successful, it saves the brand money and it keeps their path clear as far as trademarks. And because their whole idea is, I want my trademark as distinct as possible. I want as few things like it as possible. I don't want anything even like breathing on it. So further they can reach, the longer stiff arm they can throw, basically, um, the better for them to keep, you know, that wide berth where their brand stays strong. And when anything like it appears to consumers, the consumers think of that company. Thanks so much, Kyle. That's Kyle Johnner of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.